Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 6. I remember in the seminary, you know, you sit there and you listen and and the professor drones on and on and on. You know how professors can be. I'm sorry if there are professors here. Uh, much like pastors, they just drone on and on. Um, and, and, and he was talking about a particular issue that was very interesting to me. And in my mind, as, as most minds do. Now, I never think that you are always 100% right with me whenever I'm talking. Because my mind goes off on tangents. And, and in this particular lecture, my mind was off on this tangent, chewing on this particular issue. And he went on and on. And, and you know, I'm sure I had that funny look in my eye, like I'm, I'm wrestling with something. And he goes, and Mr. Jenkins, what do you think about that? Well, I gave him my opinion, and the, and the class laughed. And I thought, why are they laughing? And they said, well, that was fine, but, but that was the issue five minutes ago. What about this one? And I said, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, because I was over here. My mind had gone off on the tangent. Well, uh, all that to say is, uh, you know, you, you and your graciousness come and you give me 20 or 30 or sometimes even more uninterrupted minutes to speak and to teach the things of, of God's Word. And, and I never expect you to, to be with it 100% because you're going to go off and, on tangents and, and the Lord's going to bring you to, to, to your mind certain things. But it is nice every once in a while, as, as you go out the door, to, to be wrestled with. And to say, well, Randy, that was great, but what about this? Or I heard what you said here, had you thought about this? And sometimes I hadn't thought about those things, or sometimes there's just not time to, to deal with all of that. Well, last week, going out the door, a couple people mentioned, well, it was great, Randy. Now we have eternal security. Does that mean I can live however I want to live? And I thought, well, no, you you can't do that. And said, well, you never said that. You, you, you just said that we were secure and that if, if I'm in my humanness, then I can run with that. If I have eternal security, then can I just go and live however I bloody well please to live and never face any of the consequences? If Christ has given his life for me and my salvation is secure, why should my life be any different? And I thought, well, that was good, Okay. That was really challenging, and that's, that's what I like to hear. So this is part two of eternal security. I wasn't going to deal with that because the, the passage last week in John really didn't talk about how we are to live. It dealt with the issue of the security that we find in Jesus Christ, that once we are in his hand, we can never be taken. But the question for us today is, so what? Do we live any differently because we are eternally secure, our salvation is secure? Are we called to live any differently, or can I just do whatever I please? So we come to several passages, and we'll look at them as, as we get to them, uh, particularly this section in Romans. And if you want to do a larger study on this, or uh, if you're in your small groups, you, you'll want to read Romans 5 and 6 and 7 in preparation for that. This, is, this stuff is so rich. We covered the first half of Romans several years ago, and we could probably just spend, you know, if, if you didn't glaze over in, in, in my rambling, we could spend weeks in these passages because this really forms the heart of salvation in Christ. Really forms the heart of salvation in Christ. 
So before we, we dig into the Word of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us this great gift in, in Jesus Christ. For some of us, we, we wrestled with it, and, and some of us, we put it off, and some of us, you just walloped us, and, and we came to that moment, and, and some might still be wrestling with it. I, I, I don't know. But we find in your Word that you do the work in our heart. You open our eyes, you bring salvation, you secure it. Help us today to understand this, but also how we are to live because of this. That you call us to a life that is so different, and it is a life that we can live now. We couldn't live it before because we were held in slaves to the things of the world, because that's who we belong to. But once we belong to Christ, we are now slaves to righteousness. Help us to understand this today, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I kind of said, there are two sides to the eternal security issue. One is the fact that we are eternally secure in God. He does the saving. We are secured in him. Christ keeps that inheritance for us. Secondly, there is our responsibility to live this out in a fashion that gives glory to our Heavenly Father. Not only do his sheep hear his voice and respond when he calls our name. Remember, this is a personal call. Remember, the shepherd stands at the gate of, of the sheepfold and says, Randy, come on. And I, as the sheep, go, okay. And I walk right out. If some other shepherd came, I would not respond. Okay? But he calls my name and I respond. So we hear his voice, but then we are called to live lives that are in greater and greater conformity to the things of Christ. The longer we are believers, the more we should be Christ-like. Now, that, that, that is not a perfect curve of growth. Now, if we look at it from across the room, we'll see this angle of sanctification grow, and we get holier and holier in that sense. But if we look at it day to day, there are some days we look like Christ and some days we don't even know who Christ is, okay? Let's face it. We all have good and bad days. Some days we're incredibly obedient. Some days God is glorified in all that we do. And some days you, 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 don't, want to have any, you don't want to have that fish bumper sticker on your car because you don't look like a Christian that day. And you don't want anybody to know that, okay? Now, if we have been saved by the work of Christ, our lives should reflect that. No one should think, that they have been saved and can now live in any fashion that they please. If that is your view, then you, one of three things. Your, your knowledge of Scripture is so small and you are uh, so, so immature in the things of Scripture that you are still sipping on milk. You have not moved on to any solid food at all. Or secondly, you have been taught incorrectly and you believe in error. Or third, you're simply not a believer. If you, if you say, I'm a Christian, but your life has no regard or reflection of the things of Christ, you've got a real problem there, a real problem. Now, Paul dealt with this issue in a variety of ways, and we see this come up in, in plenty of places in the New Testament. And it is a, a term which, was, which came about by Luther. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti meaning against, nomi meaning the law. So against the law. There was this view that I'm saved, I don't have to follow any law, okay? I'm saved, I don't have to follow any law at all, especially any moral law that comes from the Old Testament. Now, this has been taught throughout the centuries in, in two major ways, other ways, but two major. 
They've taught that once people are justified by faith in Christ, they no longer have any obligation to the moral law. I've been saved. Law has no effect in my life. Or secondly, that since Christ has raised believers above the law, they need only be obedient to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. That's the law written on my heart. Okay, I don't have to pay any attention to those Ten Commandments. It's the law that the Holy Spirit has written on my heart that I obey. The problem with that is so often the, heart, the, the, the law that's written on my heart is written by Randy. Okay? It's the law that I want to obey, okay? that best fits my agenda and my personality. Oh, because when we read those things in Scripture that are painful, when we read those things in Scripture that are very difficult, that call us to act in a certain way, you know, in my sinfulness, I can go, well, that's, that's not written on my heart. Okay? That one's not, that, that, the Lord has not laid that upon my heart. Well, yes, he has. I'm just not paying attention to it. If we can pitch out any written law or any moral law from the Old Testament or any ethic that is presented to us in the New Testament, we are simply taking certain passages of Scripture, not highlighting them. We're simply crossing them out as if they don't have any effect on us. And, and we have to cross out the entire book of James, okay? Because the book of James is all about your life has been changed. Now live it out. How is it different? Okay? Antinomianism is the belief that faith in Christ frees the Christian from any obligation to the moral law. Now, Paul insists that salvation is by grace alone. And if you, I'll say this several times, and if you take that to the nth degree, then it means I don't have any law to pay attention to because I've been saved by grace. Paul teaches this in Romans 3, Ephesians 2, 2 Timothy, Titus. So some take the words of Paul as license to do whatever they want, or license to at least fudge on some of the harder things. Christ did not give his life so that we can fudge on some of the hard teachings of Scripture. He did not come and leave the throne of our Heavenly Father and come and take on the form of man so that we could live according to our own moral law that we could obey our own things. He came so that we might live lives that give glory to our Heavenly Father and to do those things in the way that he lays out for us. Okay? As I said, antinomianism was coined by Martin Luther back in what was termed the antinomian controversy about 1540. Uh, one of his students, Johann uh, Agricola, began to teach that if we've been saved by grace, and if I sin and grace abounds all the more, then what do I have to worry about? Perhaps I should go about and sin a little bit more so grace can abound even more in my life. If you remember the uh, Romanovs and Rasputin, the uh, crazed monk in uh, the last uh, czar of Russia, and he kind of taught that uh, if I go out and I sin boldly, then God's grace can be manifest in my life even more. So he went and he was, uh, most of his life was lived in debauchery, and his hope was that in, in my debauchery, God's grace might be manifest in my life. Hmm. Kind of a skewed theology at the minimum. Well, Agricola taught this back in the 1500s, and then Luther called him on it, so he had to recant, but as soon as Luther died, Agricola went right back to teaching it again. 
Views even more extreme than these were later advocated by uh, some of the nonconformists in England and even some of the more uh, radical of the Anabaptists uh, throughout Europe. It first came to this country in the Massachusetts Bay Colony with Anne Hutchinson, who taught that there is no necessary correlation to salvation and good works. Not that good works add to our salvation, but she taught that there was no correlation between living a life of the Christian and being saved. You could live however you want if you were saved because you were secure. Now, I'm boiling that down to a kind of a, a sound bite there, but that was the gist of it. So, as most of the people who didn't agree with the Massachusetts Bay Colony theologically, she was kicked out to Rhode Island. Okay, So, if you're from Rhode Island, you're probably the descendant of a bunch of... Uh, Heretics? I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's look at Romans chapter 6 and begin to wrestle with this as Paul did. Romans chapter 6, especially 14 and 15. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Well, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under moral law but under grace? False as may it never be. Now, my... Uh, my reading of that does not give the proper emphasis that the Greek would give, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Okay? Paul talks about the law in a lot of places, and the law is seen in, in, in certain places as being very spiritual, very godly. The law is holy. Uh, the commandments are holy and righteous and good. Uh, we know the law is spiritual. I delight in the law of God. Now, this is Paul, the... the the author of all of this grace, or the, he writes about the grace of Christ again and again, and here he writes about the importance of the law and how important it is. But he also says in 16 and 17, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Slaves to sin, Christ comes, he frees you from slavery to sin, so what? That you might be a slave to righteousness. Well, I'm a slave to somebody, right? That's right. Everyone is a slave to something, and it is to that master that you will give allegiance. If it is a slave to sin, you will give sin your allegiance, and you will follow the commands of sin. If you are a slave to righteousness and the things of Christ, your allegiance and your behavior will give cause of glory to our Heavenly Father. Now, let's look at our world today. What are we slaves to? Men, in particular, what are you slaves to? You slaves to a type of a thought in your life? Are you slaves to what what you think is right and what the world says man ought to do and how we ought to behave and how we should structure our families and things like that according to the teachings of the world? Are you slaves to the things that come into your eyes and your sight? I mean, just, you know, we have to be, be honest here. The statistics of, of men involved in online pornography are just incredible, just incredible, even within the church, okay? Women, what are you slaves to? Are you slaves to to pettiness or selfishness, or are you slaves to gossip? We all are slaves to something, okay? And even though we are believers, there is enough of the vestiges of sin in our life that it tries to hold us, 
Okay, it's like, um, I, I, I don't know, uh, you're trying to get out of the house and there's your dog with his teeth sunk into your pant leg saying, no, no, stay and play with me. Don't leave the house. And, and you're trying to go out like this and he's holding you. That's the way sin has a hold on us. It grabs onto us and does not want to let go, but it is not our master. We have been freed from that, even though there are vestiges of it in our lives. We have been freed that we might serve righteousness, the things of Christ. Okay? Now, Paul is clearly revealing to us here in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace, that the ceremonial and the civil laws of the Old Testament are not applicable here. We're talking about the moral laws. Let me quote from the Westminster Confession to, to give us a, a good grounding here. God was pleased to give the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, which all prefigure Christ. So we don't have a sacrificial system anymore. Okay, that, That's one explanation of the ceremonial laws. All which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Uh, all that to say is that when your children are bad, you don't go take them out in front of the gate and stone them anymore. Okay? You deal with them in a different fashion. But the moral law is forever binding, as well as justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. The moral law of God is binding on our hearts. We don't have a sacrificial system. We don't stone our kids. But the moral law is binding on our hearts, even though we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So Paul, who gives this wonderful treatise on justification, beginning in chapter 5 and then moves on to chapter 6, with the twin of justification. We call it the twin. Justification is that event that happens in our lives where we are saved. We are completely changed. And now chapter 6 is dealing with that ongoing process in our life called sanctification. How are we to structure our lives to reflect this saving work in our life in justification? For the sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Again, the master. In sanctification, we become more and more obedient to the things of Christ. He is our master. Now, when I was first became a Christian, I didn't understand that. I thought I was a good guy. You know, I, I did. I mostly obeyed what my parents asked me to do and things like that. But as you understand and grow in the things of Christ, you become more and more like him. I equate it with two candles, two tapers. One is lit, the other is not. As you become more and more Christ-like, it's like you're the unlit candle, and you move closer and closer to Christ who is the lit candle, and you almost begin to give off light. If you, if you take those two candles and move them closer, the unlit one almost seems to glow because of the lit candle. That's the same way we are with Christ. As we move closer and closer to him, we begin to demonstrate more and more of the things of Christ. Okay, we all know saints, and, and they're all saintlier than we are. And you think, how did they get that? They got that way because of their obedience. They got that way because they filled their hearts with the things of Christ. And then they began to live them out. Okay? It's not enough just to have this in our heads. It has to be lived out. 
Okay, in the Sunday school class today, Mark talked about going to Bible studies and, and filling our minds with that. He says it's no good unless you put it to use. It's no good unless you put it to use. Paul says you cannot continue in grace if you think you can go on and sin with abandon. He says those two things are incompatible. Now there's a question that is raised here. If my salvation doesn't depend at all on what I do, and if my sins, past, present, and future, are now covered, and if I now live in a condition of grace so that where my sin abounds, grace may abound all the more, then why don't I abound in sin? If I want the grace of God to be manifest in my life, isn't the best way to do it to sin? Okay, isn't that what Paul is saying here? And he says, no. Look at, look at verse 15. May it never be. Look at verse 2. May it never be. Never, never, never. The word is so strong here in the Greek that we could use any or all of these words to translate it. God forget. God forbid. Absolutely not. It's absurd. It is totally unacceptable. Holy to be rejected. Don't even consider it as a theological truth. Don't even consider it. That is not the way the believer lives. When you were a slave to sin, sin was your master. When you're a slave to Christ, Christ is your master. Righteousness is the fruit of that. If you give yourself to any master, you become its slave. If your master is sin, then you're going to obey sin. If your master is righteousness, you will obey righteousness. Your old self has died. If you are a believer, your old self is gone. The new self has been created, and that is created in Christ. You died to the old things. You buried the old things. You are a new person. You have a new master, and your master is righteousness. Any idea of living a life of grace without any influence of the law is simply oxymoronic. You can't have those two. Now, look at verse 20 of chapter 5. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. This was one of the great objections to this teaching uh, at the time of the Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And that was that if you don't hold anybody accountable for their actions, then they will go live in what we call antinomianism. They will pitch out the law and live however they like. But a heart that is truly changed will not desire the things of sin. Now, we won't, it's not that we won't fall into them, but we won't desire them. We won't habitually, purposely pursue the things of sin. And, and if we fall into that, we will be broken. We will be, be heartfelt ang angst about disappointing our Heavenly Father. Now, let me go through a couple, three, three items in particular. Christians are dead to sin, but that does not mean we will never sin again. When Christ died, believers in some sense died with him and through him. Just let me read a couple passages here. Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Okay? Crucified, dead, it is done away with. Now we have died with Christ, verse 8. So there is a union with Christ that makes what would happen to him 
valid also, in a sense, for us. He has died to sin. Our sin has died. We need to bury it and put it aside. Secondly, when Christ rose, believers, in some sense, were made alive with him. Verse 4, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. Not in the old ways of life, but in the newness of life. Newness in Jesus Christ. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we shall also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. If we have died to sin, we will live to the newness that comes in Christ. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, Believers are commanded to become in practice what we are in Christ. We are commanded to become in practice what we are in Christ. And that is dead to sin, alive to God. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Paul does not assume that we will automatically, once we become a Christian, suddenly change our life. Okay? Sometimes there is a great change in people's lives, and sometimes there is this struggle with sin that goes on and on and on. Paul does not assume that the Lord will come and we will be free from any desire to do sin. Sometimes the Lord comes and removes certain desires from us, And other times we struggle with this. Instead, he says, you died, so consider yourselves dead. You are alive, so consider yourselves alive to Christ. So now become what you are. You are alive in Christ. Now become alive in Christ. You have been dead to sin, alive in Christ. Become alive in Christ. Just a quick mention of a few other passages. You want to turn over to chapter 7 there, verse 15. We'll get to that in just a moment. Matthew 19, the rich young ruler. We all know that one. When he asked about eternal life, the response of Jesus is what? Obey the law. Obey the law. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to abolish them. Romans 13, by loving one another, you fulfill the law. 1 John chapter 3, sin is lawlessness. Revelation 14, those who obey God's commandments are faithful to Christ. 1 John chapter 2, if you say you know him, but you don't obey him, you are a liar. You are a liar. Straightforward. And then one of the applications of this is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember, he is writing this letter, and word has come to him that some man is involved in an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother. Romans, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, kick him out. Kick him out of the fellowship and let Satan have at him so that his heart might be broken and that he would return to the things of Christ. Okay? Christians do not live in this fashion. They do not blatantly, habitually, purposely pursue sin like this. And if he does, his heart needs to be broken in some fashion. And it's come to that point where he says, kick him out of the fellowship. Let Satan work on him so that the grace of God might come and he would return different. And now perhaps the, the best passages, passage on this, Romans chapter 7, verse 15 and following. And this is Paul's struggle with this whole issue here in a personal fashion. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. 
For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul says, why do I do these things? I know better, but yet I don't always do what I'm supposed to do. And I don't do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Roman times, one of the means of execution would be that if I went and purposely killed someone, they would take that person's dead body and they would tie it to me face to face and that was a means of execution as that body began to deteriorate either the person who was guilty would either die from that deterioration or he would go crazy and often throw himself off of a very high place that is the reference Paul is making here who will deliver me from this body of death he says this sin that, that keeps creeping into my life is like this dead body. I want to get rid of it. I want to live for Christ. I want to put all those things away, and I want to live only for Christ. Who will deliver me from these things? And this is Paul. This is the guy who saw Christ face to face, who spent three years in the, in the desert learning from the Holy Spirit, being taught those things. This is the, you know, by, by the time he's writing this, this is the guy who has planted churches, the guy who who's, has expose the theology of Christ to those first century churches. And he says, I wrestle with these things. So we understand that we will not automatically be freed from this body of death. But the only way we can be free is to continue to pursue the things of Christ. So this is the short answer. If I'm saved and eternally secure, can I go and live however I want? No. That goes against all these teachings in scripture your life is to conform to the things of God will it do perfectly will it conform perfectly I haven't seen anybody conform perfectly even the people we hold up as, as great pillars of, of the Christian faith their lives were not perfect but God calls us to pursue holiness and righteousness we are no longer slaves to sin we are slaves to righteousness slaves to the things of Christ now live it. Let's pray. Lord, these are, these are straightforward things. But we wrestle with them because there's enough of these vestiges of sin in our lives that, that, that you know, it holds on to us and wants us to come back to it, to those behaviors and their thoughts. There's so many opportunities in this world for us to be, be taken aside by sin. To have our minds filled with things they shouldn't be. 
to have our eyes fall upon things that they shouldn't, to have our mouths say things that they shouldn't, to have our hearts dwell on things that they shouldn't. But there are so many opportunities as well to live in fashions that are compassionate and kind and just. There are so many people around us who need to hear the gospel from our mouths, to see it from the works of our hands. There's no shortage of those in need. There's no shortage of of those who need to hear the gospel, that their lives might be changed in the same fashion as ours has been. So, Lord, fix that security in our hearts. That if we've received Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's because of your work and it can never be taken. But also fix in our minds that we are now slaves to righteousness. That we must pursue the things of Christ with all that we are that we might demonstrate them in word and deed, fearing no man, but only doing the work that you lay before us. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.